please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. There are sermon outlines which have been prepared. I think many of you may receive them with your bulletin. If not, there are more in the lobby or in the foyer. This, this morning's message is the ninth sermon in a series on creation, which began in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first verse of the Bible, and which we will conclude next Sunday in, at the, with the end of this chapter. Ten sermons on the most basic truths of our faith. And if you've been able to be faithful in attending all each one of these sermons or have heard them, the hope is that you will, be, you will grow in the soundness and the foundation, the solidity of your faith as you look at the beginning of, of God's revelation to man, the beginning of the world and the beginning of humankind and our relationship with God. This morning, as we come to Genesis 3, we come to what's sometimes known as the fall of man or your original sin, which is the title of my sermon. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So far, the reading of God's word. Father, the unfolding of your word indeed does give light, and it makes wise the simple. It is the, it is the understanding that is indeed to be desired, not the understanding of transgressing your law, but of understanding it and of keeping it, indeed of loving it. So would you please enable my words and our thoughts to bring you honor and glory this morning as we go through this most important passage of scripture about our original sin. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now when you crack an egg, either in a bowl or on the side of a pan, it usually doesn't break open all at once. At least for me it takes a couple of taps. Now, I've mastered the art of cracking an egg with one hand. It's impressive. I actually learned it from my brother who worked at McDonald's, and while he was working there, he taught himself some skills. <laughs> Likewise, I, I have uh, trees in my backyard, and I like to pretend I'm a lumberjack from time to time, so I'll swing the, the, the big heavy maul and split a stump, and 
as much as I'd like to believe that with one swing of the maul I can split open a stump, it usually takes a couple of whacks of the maul for Pastor Phil to split the log. Now, if you know Mike Sterling, by the way, he would split wood in my backyard from time to time. He'd split it with one, one shot. What makes sense with an egg or a stump sheds light on the struggle we have with sin in our lives. You see, it's not normally just one tap or one whack. If sin is the split or the opening of the thing, it's usually more than one. It's, it's multiple decisions over the course sometimes of a period of time. Sometimes they start out quite small and even innocently. But ultimately, they lead up to your final finished breach or splitting, opening, tearing, breaking of God's law. And that is what sin is. This may be the most important thing I say this morning. Sin is breaking God's law. That's what sin is. The Bible says sin is lawlessness. If there was no law, there would be no sin. But if it is not God's law, God's law, it is also not sin. Because God alone defines sin and evil, which is what is under discussion or the concern of our passage this morning. This is why the taps or the wax of sin are so danger, dangerous for an image bearer of God. Listen closely. The tiny departures of God's path, children, may not seem important to you at the moment. It may seem like something that you could think about later when you're a grown-up, when you're in school, when you're in college, when you're on your own, when you're married. But ask any adult in here and they will tell you that that itself is a little tap of sin that cracks the egg or splits the stump. Sin will eventually swallow your happiness and spiritually tear your soul from your body. And you will suffer loneliness, loss of fellowship with God, and you will experience horrible guilt and shame that cannot be removed no matter how much you try. That's sin. And this is the job of a Christian preacher and of a Christian sermon, isn't it? To warn you of either what you already know and need the reminder, or of what you don't yet know to help you avoid going down that path. But a good sermon won't just point out the danger, it must also show you the cure, which in this case means pointing you to Jesus Christ, who Scripture says came into the world, with this passage in mind, I believe, Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil and to cast out the prince of darkness. And this is the character, the prince of darkness, who appears for the first time in our passage. He is a supernatural heavenly evil being he utilizes an ordinary creature a reptile to present himself as the tempter the liar and the trickster of the first man and the first woman and he succeeds and their sin is your sin our catechism teaches all mankind by their fall has lost fellowship with god and are under his wrath and curse and are so made liable to all the miseries of this life to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Adam and Eve's sin 
is your sin. And since that's the case, you can't afford to read the story as if it's someone else's story. This is not some ancient myth. This is something that happened in time and space to two people who God stipulated were the head of the human race. And what happened to them, like dominoes, has happened to all of us, even to this very day. If your original sin is an egg, it is an egg that's cracked open with three strikes. If it's a stump, it only takes three whacks to split it open. Let's take a look at what those blows or whacks look like. The first whack or tap is the serpent's sneaky presentation. This is my first point. And it is sneaky. He shows up somewhat suddenly. It's a disjunctive now. Moses is drawing our attention in the story to the fact that now something new is happening. There's a new scene and a new character on the scene. It's the serpent. And it's the serpent. We might even capitalize the, the letter T and the letter S. It's specific. Moses wants to know this isn't just any reptile. There's something unique and special about this one. The first deadly blow to the heart and soul of our first parents came as a surprise, I believe, because this ordinary creature, one of the many creatures that God had created, made by God in Genesis 1, named by God and named by Adam in Genesis 2. But this is the serpent. Somehow this creature is endowed with speech. Man was the one speaking and naming the animals. The animals are not speaking to man, certainly not acting as a theologian, interpreting God's word to man. These are both hints in the text that this serpent is no ordinary reptile. What enters the holy garden of God is no mere animal. Satan, as I said, is an angelic being whose origins are in heaven and whose sin and fall precedes that of our text. This is not the first sin that we read about. It's the only sin that's explained in detail, and it's the only sin that you need to be concerned about. The devil made me do it doesn't work for three-year-olds or 30-year-olds or 50-year-olds. He is described in our verse, verse 1, as shrewd or crafty or sneaky. And it's true. The enemy is wiser than you and I are as humans substantially more intelligent, significantly more gifted. He's known in some parts of Scripture as Lucifer, which means the shining one. He was the radiant, glorious, first-ranked angel of God before he fell, along with a third of the angels whom he led in rebellion. This is described, by the way, in the New Testament in the briefest terms in the book of Second Peter and in the book of Jude. In verse 1, he's simply described as shrewd, and it's true. He uses speech and quotes God's word. So he, he was a witness to the covenant between God and Adam before Eve was created, because he quotes God's word even better than Eve does, as we'll see in a moment. Well, what do we see about his sneaky presentation? You know what sneaky means, right? It's quiet doesn't want to be noticed. He doesn't want it to be made obvious of what he's doing. 
First, I see in our text that he's exploiting God's order of creation. Notice the person he speaks to is not the person that God gave the covenant to. Now, Eve clearly is a covenant partner with God, or rather with Adam. The text makes it absolutely clear that she owns the covenant as her own covenant. But she is not the covenant head. She is not the covenant representative. In God's wisdom, and I'm not sure why I touched on this a couple of weeks ago, he made the man first, and he made a covenant with man. And then man explained the word of God. He taught the word of God. He taught the covenant of God to his wife after their marriage ceremony, which so thrilled his heart. One of his first actions, which the scripture doesn't say, but which we can infer, is to communicate the substance of that covenant to his wife, and she knew it. So why didn't the serpent come to the covenant head? I believe it's because he is exploiting the order of creation. Let me explain. Eve is made to be a corresponding helper to the man. That's her, her inscripturated, God-given role. Equal in every sense. Fully image-bearing of God. Sinless, holy, glorious. Beautiful in her own right. But given a specific in the, in the order of God's creation, not in the valuation of God's creation, but in the distribution of work within that marriage pair, she is made to be a corresponding helper. That's her, that's her calling. Adam was made by God to be the guardian and the protector. This is how God made the woman and how God made the man. This does not mean that somehow the woman in her creation was more susceptible to sin. Eve, no more than Adam, was susceptible to sin. In fact, both Eve and Adam were inclined to obey. They had every desire to love God, to cling to God, and to reside in the fellowship and company of God, the religious face-to-face -face communion that was established by God in his goodness to this first pair. Now, I think it's a misconception that somehow the woman is somehow more easily deceived. Rather, I believe Satan uses the divinely given character of helpfulness that he has given to woman as a way to exploit the order of creation. It's very deceptive. It's shrewd. Second, Satan then confuses God's clear command when he speaks to Eve with a question. The text says, he said to the woman in verse 1, did God really say? Did he actually say? I read one translation of this by a scholar that says, God didn't say that. Or, I can't believe God said that, is another way you could render this. And then what he says that God said isn't what he said. So by, by asking a question of God, it's very crafty, it's sneaky, isn't it? But then the very question he asks puts God in the, in the, in the light of a being a bad guy. 
What God actually said is, you can eat of all these trees. He is the ultimate benefactor. And what the devil said is, God said you couldn't eat of any of these trees? So Eve's already on the defensive by this sneaky move. God, in fact, was an extravagant invitation to eat, and Satan described it as a miserly restriction to not eat. So he opposes or exploits God's order of creation. He confuses God's command with a question. Then he contradicts his promise. It's a direct contradiction. You will not surely die. Just flip back a page. You will surely die. It's a a just flat-out contradiction. That's as bold as he gets. That doesn't seem to me to be too sneaky on the surface, but if you dig into the actual way that the phrase is worded, it's something like this. You'll die, but you won't die. Or, you won't die, you'll die. It's a confusion of what God said most extremely clearly. It's a kind of separation. It's a kind of postponement of the death. It's a minimizing of the death. It's an alteration of the death. It's a distraction of the death. But ultimately, it is a contradiction of God's promise. And then finally, he maligns God's character. I suggested this already. He hints in our text in verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows, verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will like God, knowing good and evil. You see, God is actually hiding something from you. The good life that you, that you thought you had, oh no. There's something better than what you've got. And God's keeping it because he's selfish and he's stingy. He's greedy and he's mean. God knows that in the day you'll eat of it, you'll have the good stuff. Exploiting God's order, confusing God's clear command, contradicting his promise, maligning his character. What a sneaky presentation of sin. And I want to invite you to think about that as you think about how you've fallen prey to Satan's sneaky presentations. I bet you'll find a lot of parallels in every one of the sins that you've struggled with. At least one or more of these elements are present. That's the first whack. That's the first tap of the egg. Had Adam and Eve been on their guard, though, the sneaky presentation of the enemy would have had no effect. But in reality, they were careless, and so they failed to consider God's commands, God's word appropriately. The threat assessment is a phrase that you might hear. The threat assessment was off. So my next point is Adam and Eve had a careless consideration. And it's both of them. Both of them are very, very careless. They're careless about the same thing also, God's word, but it shows up in different ways. For Eve, the carelessness looks like these two things. She exaggerates the prohibition. She says, yes, I'm not supposed to eat that tree in the midst of the garden. Oh, and I'm not supposed to touch it either. 
Sometimes this is called putting a fence around the law. We know that adultery is wrong, so we don't even go near a person of the opposite sex or look at them. She made God stricter than he actually was. I believe that's being careless with God. It's being careless with his word. Because he meant what he said. Focus on eating everything. Don't worry about this tree. Just don't eat from it. That was enough. It was sufficient. God's word was sufficient the way he had communicated to it. Now, your tricks and tips and kind of maneuverings around the law, I understand that they're hacks sometimes that help you kind of get from point A to point B, but at the end of the day, you will be saved as you follow God's law and not your own, not the things you add to it. And I'm afraid that many of you struggle with seeing God in in the right light, in part because you've either believed the lie that he's stricter than he is, or you've You've added so much to God's law in your own mind that you've forgotten what the original thing was all about. This was the problem of the Pharisees. It's a kind of fundamentalism, if I may put it that way. But there's something else that you might miss. You need to read carefully to see it. Look at the first words of the serpent to Eve. He said to the woman, Did God really say? Now, up till this point, all through Genesis chapter 2, which is focused on man's relationship with God, that is not the name of God that has been used. Many times in Genesis 2, God has given a very special name, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. The Lord God said to the man, the Lord God placed him in the garden. This word Lord speaks of God's relationship with man. It's a a relational name. It says that I'm not just the creator of the world, but I'm, I'm the one who gives and receives oaths and promises with the people that I have made. I'm in relationship with them. And, and Satan conveniently eliminates or omits the fact that his name is Yahweh Lord. And Eve knows better, but how does she refer to her God? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, right there I believe in changing the name that God had revealed to Adam, in changing that name, we see that she is being careless or neglectful of God's name. What about Adam's carelessness? Well, Adam is careless with his actions because he is charged in Genesis 2.15 to guard and keep the garden. In theory, he should have destroyed the snake. He should have stepped on it or cut its head off or stood by the gates of the Garden of Eden, which was like a palace garden where the cherubim are eventually placed, I believe, kind of as a sort of backwards critique of what Adam should have been doing all along. His actions are careless, but his silence is careless as well. Isn't this amazing that in six verses, we have this extended conversation between the serpent and Eve, and Adam is just sitting there watching 
Now, guys, you have to find this funny. He let his wife do the talking, but he was in charge. This is called abdication. And so he was careless with his calling to speak the word of God and to defend the garden. So the first tap or whack is that the serpent has a sneaky presentation and a little crack emerges. The second one is that Adam and Eve are careless in their consideration of God's word. The third and the final crack, this is the one that's going to open it all up, is that they actually disobey. Look at each of Adam and Eve's disobedience. Eve's disobedience, I believe, was to make herself independent. Now, we value the idea in our society today of an independent woman. I'm not really speaking of that unless you can see connections here, but my focus is specifically the fact that Eve was made to help her husband, not to be independent from him. And then certainly not to be independent from God. So this is independence or being an independent woman in the worst sense of the word. Independently entertaining the enemy's questions without her husband's support, input, or protection. And what's worse, she is independent of God's covenant command. You see this in verse 6 where she finally turns to evaluate the tree. Notice the serpent never tells her to sin. Everything is indirect with him. And then when she finally looks at the tree in verse 6, she says that it's good for food, it's a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Evaluating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil not as God had described it, but according to her own understanding, it reminds me of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Could have been written with Eve in mind. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. She didn't do that. Lean not unto your own understanding. She didn't do that. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. She didn't do that. And He will direct your paths. He didn't do that. Instead, she trusted in her own understanding and she reached a very different conclusion about the tree than God did. It was good for food. This was an appraisal that suited her fleshly appetite. It was beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. This appraisal suited her own selfish lust and covetousness. And it was useful also or desirable for making her wise, which fueled her pride. This has, a, I think, an important and a biblical overlap to a description of sin by the Apostle John in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, it is good for food, the desires of the eyes, pleasing or a delight to the eye, and the pride of life or desirable to make one wise. None of this is from the Father, but from the world. That's 1 John 2, 15 and 16. What about Adam? Adam's disobedience is different. I've touched on this already. Scripture tells us that the man was not deceived. Did you know that? Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. But guys, before you start feeling good about yourselves, 
he wasn't deceived. Do you hear what I'm saying? He knew what he was doing. Eyes wide open. This man boldly, brazenly, wantonly, openly walked straight into sin. Adam's sin, I believe, was worse. He knew what he was doing. He willfully chose to disobey. And if there's an excuse for being deceived, he had no excuse. He heard the command originally from God. Eve had only heard it from Adam. He saw the serpent's temptation, and instead of acting on what he knew, he simply followed his wife into disobedience. If the woman's weakness is a corruption of her calling to be receptive to the man and to God, a man's weakness is instead of faithfully and fearlessly leading in the commission to guard and keep the garden, he stands by, idle, abdicating, and silent. Before I conclude, I want to address one major concern I've heard when people read this part of the Bible. It has to do with this question of how that sin could come to corrupt the good world that God had made from the beginning. I think when wrestling with this question, we need to keep two things in mind. First of all, the original sin was not a surprise to God. In fact, it was part of his holy, sovereign plan from the beginning. God had decreed the fall. If the greatest crime in history, the crucifixion of the Christ, came according to the sovereign determination and foreknowledge of God, which it did, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, then the same must be said of the first crime of history, the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God. But secondly, God is not the author of sin. In decreeing the fall, in no way did sin originate in God's mind. For sin as sinfulness, Murray says, man alone was responsible. And he is the agent of execution. Adam did it. God did not do it. God did not work in the heart and mind of man so as to tempt him to his apostasy or even prevent him from it. Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They were the agents of the sinful act. It was their hearts which gave rise to the sinful desire, which was then the basis in their minds to determine and then to carry out the sinful action. How these two things may be understood together is a mystery beyond our comprehension. How divine and human agency converge in this and every other sinful act in the Bible and in our lives is something that you will never fully understand. But as Murray also says, the humble Christian is content to contain this unresolved problem in his heart of faith. This problem does not dis disturb our peace of mind because in the last analysis, you don't need to know. You're the creature. And God has not revealed the intricacies of the mystery of his working to you. The ultimate expression of Christian faith is this. God knows, and that's enough. That's sufficient. Well, in conclusion, in my opening comments, I mentioned how sin is complex. It's not just, for most of us anyway, just one tap. 
It's multiple taps. It's multiple whacks on this stump that I've been describing. It's the result of a series of a number of small acts of disobedience in the case of Adam and Eve, which ultimately come to fruition, pun intended, in eating the forbidden fruit. The final result of their action was the final rupture of their fellowship with God, which plunged them and all mankind from them into misery, guilt, and shame. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. His job, which he succeeded at, is to cast out the prince of darkness. The God of this world has been thrown out fully, finally. He is the liar and the father of lies, but the Lord Jesus came with the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, in doing this, he takes a whack as well. Jesus receives a blow to his body and soul that he didn't deserve, nor did he invite. But he willingly underwent suffering the punishment due to your bondage and sin and mine. He strikes at it with three blows even, his incarnation, his holy and obedient life, and his bloody death on the cross. And these three whacks, one after the other, gradually crack open the chain that has held you to serving sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And once you were bound and blind in darkness, and he has truly opened your eyes that you might see wonderful things in your law. I'll never forget when I first became a Christian, I'd been reading this book, just searching for answers, like randomly reading things on the page, and it was like, may as well have been Chinese or Russian. But one day, God opened my eyes, and I read in this book that Jesus loved me. And I grew up in church. I'd heard it a hundred times, a thousand times. But it finally made sense to me. By Christ, my story, your story is forever changed. And the temptation of the serpent, the old enemy of man, is finally completed and finished and dealt with. You see this actually in the Bible when Jesus goes into the wilderness and battles the serpent with three temptations which the gospel writers describe as every temptation. And the three temptations our Lord endured in the wilderness, just like Eve, he's offered the lust of the flesh, bread, to satisfy his hunger. The lust of the eyes, the temptation to save himself from the pinnacle of the temple in a glorious fashion. and the pride of life when, when Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world. And in each case, rather than disregarding or distorting or downplaying the word of God, he certainly doesn't exaggerate it, he doesn't neglect it, he doesn't forget it. He quotes the scriptures in every case. But the scripture says, but the scripture says, but the scripture says, and finally he commands that the devil be gone. This is the one who comes into the world a new Adam for me and you. I want to leave you with two challenges this morning. First of all, I want to challenge you with this. The devil is real, and he is a liar, and he is a deceiver. Someone has said that the greatest lie of the devil that he's ever told is to convince you that he's not real. He's real. You cannot get far in your spiritual journey without recognizing that there is an unseen enemy whose wisdom and insight far exceeds that of mere mortals such as you and me.
whose organization and aids and assistance includes a vast host of lesser demons, spirits, and evil angels. We battle not against flesh and blood, is how Paul puts it. You do not fight a human foe. You are not looking at your worst enemy when you're looking at your spouse or your parents or your children or your employer or your neighbor or yourself. Your greatest enemy is invisible. You cannot see him, and he pursues you in an organized, systematic, and subtle, crafty, sneaky fashion. You cannot fight him on your own. You need the armor of God, which the Bible tells you includes the word of God and faith and salvation and righteousness and prayer. Second, speaking of the word of God, you need to reverence God's word. It is the best means of fighting temptation in your life. Many scriptures present this perspective, but here are a few for your consideration. Psalm 19, verse 8. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that you would know the hope of your calling. This suggests without God's intervening grace, you will be hopeless. Some of you are hopeless. You need to pray and ask others to pray. God would enlighten your heart. John chapter 9, the accusation of the Pharisees by Jesus applies to all proud persons who think they know the Bible but don't live it. Since you claim to see, he says to them, your guilt remains. That's basically what Eve did. I know what God said. I mean, it's not exactly word for word, but close enough. I mean, you know, touch it, eat it. Beware of religious pride. Beware of being careless with God's word. Let us pray. Father, as we conclude this morning's study in your scriptures, I pray that you will take what has been said and make it real to us, particularly, Lord, for the one who is hanging on the edge, wavering, considering apostasy, turning his or her back upon you especially for the one who has been beaten down by temptation and giving way to his or her sin. Especially, Lord, those of us who have grown complacent with religious pride, taking for granted all the things that we have been given as Christians and as creatures made in your image. Especially, Lord, the elders and the pastor who have such a high and holy calling of following your scriptures and teaching it to others. May we not be guilty of hypocrisy in teaching what we do not practice. May we all realize that we are not sinners in theory, but sinners in reality, sinners in fact. And may this congregation and all of our friends and family and loved ones, Lord, may we be families and may we be a community of sinners who are saved by grace, who have, though we have failed in the garden, we have a Savior who has succeeded in the wilderness and who, in, in battling Satan in every temptation, has broken our chains and given us hope. May indeed the eyes of our hearts this morning be enlightened that we might know this hope and know that the devil does not have the last word and sin will not define us or defeat us. 
listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.